Hello and welcome to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'll be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Sebastian Ribou, Vice President and Head of End-to-End CDMO Services, Process Solutions at Merck Life Science. Known as Millipore Sigma in the US and Canada. With a PhD in molecular and cellular biology, Sebastian has been in the biotech space for almost 25 years. He has spent the bulk of his career at Merck and or Millipore, where he has progressed to the position of head of end-to-end CDMO services. Hey, Sebastian, welcome to the show. Thank you, and thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. It's uh, it's great to have you here, and you you have a, a, a wonderful accent as well, so I'm going to uh, ask you questions and just enjoy listening to your <laughs> your lovely French accent. So just to, just to start off with, Sebastian, it'd be great to... Uh, give our listeners a bit of an overview uh, about you and and also just you know a little bit about your background and how you ended up in the sector from college and, and, and through to the role that you do today. Sure. Uh, well, I, I started um, to be interested in biology years ago. Um, uh, I was moving a lot with my parents when I, I was a kid and we spent uh, years in, in Africa. And uh, I remember once visiting a, a lab at the, at the Pasteur Institute and one of the pharmacies there was uh, putting human cells in culture. And that's when I, I, I decided, and I was like 10 years old, uh, that I wanted <laughs> to grow cells in the future um, as well. And my parents gave me a microscope that is still with me, actually, on my desk uh, as we speak today. Uh, and I continued uh, learning biology, went through a, a biotech engineering school, uh, started my career a bit more than 25 years ago in the field of gene therapy, uh, where I stayed during five years uh, working with uh, retroviruses, adenoviruses, um, and cell lines in, in general. Uh, so doing exactly what I, I, I thought I would do years before uh, because of, of an opportunity um, that appeared uh, on, my, on my radar. I moved uh, to a company, a, a very small company, startup for people that was working both in the field of gene therapy and in vitro diagnostic. Um, and I stayed in that, in that domain during another four years. Uh, before joining joining Midipore. Um, and I'm still with the company 16, 16 years after, uh, taking care now of our clients in the CDMO space. Um, we're developing processes and manufacturing recombinant proteins using mammalian cells up to up to commercial up to commercial manufacturing. So uh, that's more or less my past uh, Forty years in a in a chat. Thank you for that. And I wanted to ask. Uh, I put a little note about your um, time in Africa and and actually be given a microscope. It's it's really interesting because I I interviewed a guest recently who talked about um, his parents getting him, I think a chemistry set or something like that when he was when he was young, and then that that kind of stuck with him as a child. And he always wanted to be a scientist. So, I just want, out of curiosity, why were you? Or did your parents have an interest in job that that had you traveling around at such a young age in in, in Africa as well? I'm just uh, interested to know why that was. 
Yeah, my, my parents were both uh, doctors um, um, and, and traveled uh, in Africa as part of the, the uh, cooperation treaty between France and many other countries in, in Africa and Madagascar, by the way. Um, so they've, they've always been passionate about medicine, uh, always wanted to have an impact, um, always wanted to help people. Um, and that's why they decided to leave the country and, and, and spend their life where uh, people like them were, were needed. And my, my, my brother and I just, just followed. And I think that their passion in their work is what motivated me as well. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the reason I also uh, I mean, realized that I wanted to have an impact, but uh, a surgery like my father was definitely not for me. Working <laughs> with cells, much better. <laughs> Very well. It sounds like they're they're you know great people, and you obviously were were heavily influenced in terms of your impact on people, albeit in in a different way. And uh, yeah, that's a it's a fascinating story as well. So, for for our listeners, how how does the CDMO division kind of fit? as a business like how does that all kind of come together um because for a lot of people they'll obviously know the kind of uh, i suppose Merck as, as as the pharmaceutical company but it's interesting to hear how it all kind of slots together the fact is that we have three large sectors uh one is the and let me call that the pharma division although it's not the way we call it internally uh, but the pharmaceutical activities are exactly what what uh, people would know about the company. The mm-hmm. second large sector is called performance materials, and uh, what many people don't know is that we have a lot of our colleagues working in microelectronics, working on on pigments, for example. I remember one of my colleagues telling me that if you have one of these uh, uh, metallic shiny. Uh, 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 paintings uh, on a car, uh, it, it, it's really probable that the pigments are coming from Merck. I said, okay, really wow. interesting. Uh, the third large sector is is the life science sector uh, in which in which I'm working. Uh, it's the assembly of the legacy Millipore organization, uh, known for life science products, uh, to. Uh, uh, help manufacturing, particularly in the pharma and biotech industry, and and the Sigma, uh, the legacy Sigma organization as well. And that's the reason why in US and Canada, Merck Life Science is called Millipore Sigma, because it's really these two organizations uh, together. And um, when you think about it, uh, Sigma and Millipore uh, add services organizations they were serving clients outside of the company, so not related at all to the, the pharma business of, of Merck AGA, uh, mm-hmm. but really serving external clients. And these activities kept growing. Um, we already had a strong presence because of Millipore uh, in the recombinant protein space. Uh, we had strong presence because of Sigma uh, in the chemical world, especially with the antibody drug conjugates, for example. Uh, and as part of, of Sigma, we add activity in the viral and gene therapy space. So when you put these three together, recombinant protein manufacturing, so my space that we call end-to-end, mm-hmm. uh, the ADC space and the viral and gene therapy space, we are actually quite a... a um, I'm not going to say a big CDM organization, but a, a reasonable size organization. 
Uh, if on the top of that, you put all my colleagues working as part of process solution services on, on testing in general, um, testing drugs for the release, for example, uh, overall, we're I mean, close to 2,000 people working in this CDMO space. So yeah, significant size. Wow, I didn't realize it was that that big. So it's a it's incredible size for uh, you know a part of a business that's working in in I suppose outsourcing and uh, and why do why do clients typically choose you guys? So is it is it is it the reputation and, and the quality that is associated with Merck and Millipore and Sigma, or is it um, you mentioned gene and cell therapy? So in ADCs, is it also just the capability that you guys have? I'm sure it's a combination <laughs> of both, but I'm just interested to know, you know, what what makes a client want to want to use you guys. You're you're right. It is a combination, but I I think um, that there are really specific points why they would choose us and not another company. Um, and it's different uh, for viral and gene therapy versus recombinant proteins versus versus ADCs. Uh, there, there, there is one thing that is common to these uh, three businesses. Uh, we've done ADCs for many years, uh, and we are manufacturing um, uh, for seven out of the nine ADCs that are on the market today. Wow. Uh, because historically, we were one of the first facility able to make ADCs at commercial scale. Uh, if you look at the site we have in Carlsbad, California for viral and gene therapy, it's uh, the first site approved for a commercial uh, viral and gene therapy treatment. And they started their operations back in 1990. Uh, if you look at the site where I am today in, in Martiac in France for the recombinant protein manufacturing, we started activities in 1987. Mm -hmm. And the first uh, GMP approved activities are um, uh, uh, not, that was in 1995. So the experience, the expertise, when you have a team that has a 30, uh, uh, 40 years experience, Sometimes uh, that has obviously a, a, a big value for a company uh, looking for an organization who can take care of their process development and manufacturing activities. You want your project to be successful. Therefore, you're looking for experienced people. If on the top of that, you put the 60 plus years of history of, of Milipore and or Sigma uh, in these domains, also as product suppliers, I think that collectively, the knowledge we have in, in the biotech industry is is very impressive. Yeah, I know it, so it sounds like it. And you mentioned a couple of sites. There. I was going to ask you about your kind of facilities. And obviously, you've got the one in France and one in California. Are there, are there other facilities that you have that, which support the, the CDMO business? So we, we we have we have many. So I mentioned activities in the viral um, and gene therapy space in California, but we also have some activities in the Boston area, mm -hmm. where we have our headquarter for uh, the the life science sector. Uh, for the um, uh, antibody drug conjugate, we have sites in Wisconsin. Um, uh, Madison is one of our our biggest ones, and we run the conjugation in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, for the recombinant protein uh, process development and manufacturing, my organization has three sites, one in, in Burlington, Massachusetts, uh, very mm -hmm. close from Boston, uh, second one in, in Martiac uh, next to Bordeaux in France, and the third one in Shanghai in China. 
we have smaller sites, um, uh, some in Switzerland, for example, and testing sites. We have three big locations, Rockville, Maryland in, in the U.S. Um, we have a, a group of sites close to uh, Edinburgh and Glasgow in Scotland. Um, and we have, uh, last but not least, presence in, in Singapore. Um, so almost everywhere on, on the planet. And I, mm-hmm. I think it's it also one of the reasons why some of the clients uh, decide to work with us because they have local contacts. They can speak with the scientists next door. And, and especially when you're running these, these projects um, uh, during the, the process development and clinical phases, you want to see live uh, the progresses you want to see live, the result you want to anticipate on the next step. So the the, the geographical proximity is important as well. Mm, yeah, so, so interesting. It's a much uh, it's a much more global, bigger animal than I I actually envisaged it would be. So it's really fascinating. I'm sure for our listener as well, uh, it's it's interesting to know a little bit about you know the the breadth and depth of the company's expertise. And and I wanted to kind of switch lanes a bit and ask you. A bit more about yourself, actually, and uh, there was something on your LinkedIn page that really caught my attention, uh, where you you're referred to a change manager, um, and I would love to explore what that means. I think I know what it means, but I wanted to uh, just get a a bit more of an understanding of when you say you're a change manager. Is that does that refer to just uh, you know M and A activity and being part of uh, different companies that have been purchased by new companies or, uh, you know, investing or acquiring or, uh, yeah. So any, any insights you've got into that terminology would be, would be great. Yeah, no, it doesn't relate to m and Uh, it's the, the, the link I can make immediately when you say that is, uh, a comment that one of my managers and friends, uh, made some years ago. And he said, uh, when, when, when it's about routine, um, you don't like it. When it's about building, you really enjoy it. And, and, and that's true. What I, what I really enjoy is, is building and growing. But when you're building, it means that you're starting from sometimes a white page or from an existing organization as well. And you have to put in place new things or change things. And whether it's new or it's a change for people that are impacted, it's always seen as a change. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and some people have no problem managing the change and I have no problem managing the change and I have no problem facing changes myself every day. Um, since we were talking about uh, my parents and, and, and how uh, I moved, I can tell you that I moved 27 times so far. Wow. Uh, and I'm saying so far because my wife is not in the room, otherwise she would kill me. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I have no problem changing. For me, it's part, of, it's part of life. I mean, the kids are changing. We are changing. There are always several aspects and facets of your, of your career. Even if you stay in the same job, you're going you're gonna to face many changes. Your mm-hmm. organization may change because you're acquired, because... Um, I mean, let's let's talk about biotech for a minute. Uh, What was uh, the definition of biotech 20 years ago and what's the definition of biotech today? Were we talking about messengers RNA 20 years ago? Yes, Uh, in college, 
when you were talking about cell metabolism and so on, you were talking about mRNA. Did we have in, in the news people talking about mRNA as a vaccine? Certainly not. So, I mean, the environment is, is changing. And I, I, I wouldn't say I'm comfortable in the change because I, I don't think that anyone is really comfortable in the change. Uh, but I am comfortable managing the change, even if that change is applied to myself. No, that's a, that's really fascinating. It, it, it's funny because it rem- you almost strike me as almost being an entrepreneur, and that that language you use is what what entrepreneurs usually talk about, where they they like starting things and building things, and then when it it becomes routine, it gets a bit boring, and they <laughs> they go and do something else. So it's uh, it's really interesting, obviously, given the size of the organization that you work in of having that mindset of change and obviously in your personal life you've obviously been through a lot of change as well and and i'm and actually i'm a big believer in kind of uh you know being comfortable with with being uncomfortable to so to speak and actually embracing change like like you've talked about so that's really fascinating to hear you're listening to molecule to market where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector the podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. On the subject of change, I mean, it's it's difficult not to talk about um, COVID and the impact of COVID on on the sector that we work in, and particularly for the space that that you operate. So, I'd love your perspective and an insight into how COVID has impacted your particular business unit and I imagine it's been a very busy time for you guys based on your capabilities and the demand in the market but uh yeah and, and at the same time you know any thoughts on any trends or accelerations of trends that you've seen as a result of COVID would be would be really interesting too. Indeed it's been very busy it's still very busy and I, I believe it's still going to be very busy for at least one year if not two. It's also very interesting because I, I was talking earlier about having an impact, and in this uh, in these pandemic times, we can have an impact. I, I can take a very very concrete example, um, and I think I can mention their name since they're mentioning that they work with us on the press and on TV. Uh, we're working with a, a very small company called uh, Centivax. They are based in in California, and they came to us uh, end of well mid last year, uh, yeah nine months ago. Uh, asking us what we could do to develop very quickly uh, an antibody anti-COVID and uh, provide them with a strategy to be the fastest possible from DNA to the release of the drug substance, uh, meaning that for them, next step is, is injection to patient. It's a COVID treatment, so we need it to be fast, and we've reinvented completely the way we're developing processes and even tech transferring and manufacturing. So we promised nine months from DNA to the GMP batch. Uh, We're month number nine, February 2021. And uh, we're finishing the purification this week. Uh, It worked. I'm I'm glad it worked. (laughs) It's it's with, I mean, I I cannot tell you that things are always going as planned, but uh, we stayed on track and and we delivered in in nine months. So what did that change? Well, first it changed the way we're developing. Usually we're delivering between, it takes 12 to 15 months to deliver a full program. 
we thought we could do it in nine. Uh, we made it in nine. So, but again, we had to reinvent ourselves and the way and the way we're developing. And that's one example. But there are there are many. Um, I've discussed recently with uh, two companies uh, who asked me if we could deliver uh, within a year, 15 months maximum, almost 100 kilos of antibodies. Um, it's a huge quantity. And, and you would usually shoot mm -hmm. for a kilo for a clinical study. Um, uh, but in, in these pandemic times, again, we have to be fast and, and we have to deliver huge quantities because we're, we're not talking about niche indications. We're not talking about the treatment of uh, hundreds of thousands of people. We're talking about millions and even billions. So the, 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 the quantities we were discussing moved very quickly from one kilo to hundreds of kilos. And again, we have to reinvent the way, the way we work. So that's the biggest impact I see. The, the needs are huge. Uh, the challenge is, um, mm -hmm. I, I tell the people, if you want to climb the Everest, uh, don't look at, at the tip of the mountain, look at base camp number one. And that, that's what we do every, every day. Mm, and and that, that's the plan on paper. Now in the real life, you also have to deal with mm -hmm. the pandemic uh, because our employees have families, uh, they have kids, the schools were closed, uh, some people got contaminated and so on. So we also had to reorganize our teams to make sure we could consistently deliver what we what we promised as well. So we've seen impact on, on the personal on the personal side, on the professional side as well. And I, I think it will it will continue. Very happy to see the vaccines, very happy to see that with uh, the safety measures we put in place. Uh, we didn't mm -hmm. suffer from any major cluster of contamination on our sites and, and glad to see that we can continue delivering and, uh, and um, hopefully one of the molecules we're developing today will be one of these treatments that will change the world tomorrow. Well, I mean, I, I love getting your perspective on that and I really appreciate your um, uh, openness and giving us such a concrete example of the impact on the outsourcing space uh, of COVID. And uh, I, I've really enjoyed hearing you talking about the reinvention of what you guys do and reinvent and tech transfer and actually having to consistently deliver. How difficult is it to reinvent and move at that speed? Because, you know, typically big pharma companies are not known <laughs> for their agility and their rapidness. So, you know, I suppose it maybe links back to your change manager role. How do you, how do you go about I suppose at a cultural level and away from not obviously the operational comp uh, complications as well, but getting people to think differently and getting people to move, you know, or, or think outside the box and do things in an alternative way. What, what does that look like? I'm, I'm really curious. Well, first, I don't think that uh, everyone can reinvent and think differently. And that's the reason why uh, we want to have people conservative in the quality and regulatory space uh, mm -hmm. because we need people who put boundaries, limits uh, in place. You never compromise on quality and you need to set, set the limits very, very clearly. Uh, and that's why we're never asking our quality and regulatory team to reinvent anything. We're just asking them to follow regulation and make sure uh, we're staying compliant. But still, it's a, it's a very large space, actually. Uh, there are many things you can, you can do. So I'm usually asking the team, if you could do things 
completely differently, what would you do? Uh, forget the limits, forget everything. Uh, let's let's uh, think out of the box for 10 minutes, one hour, two hours, and, and tell me what, what you think is best. And I know that many people tend to separate innovation from the routine work. Um, I don't think it's the right approach. Usually when I'm asking the question, I'm asking the question to all the layers we have in the organization because uh, it's not because you're a manager that you're going to have smarter ideas than, than one of our technicians. And, and some of our technicians made proposals that I mean, were fantastic and that, that we have applied. Uh, so it's really teamwork. And I mean, recently we had a discussion internally about inclusion. And you want to make sure you're including everyone uh, in these discussions. Uh, and the sum of ideas is always stronger than the individual ideas. Um, mm -hmm. I, I must say that the company culture, although we're a large company, uh, is very much about making sure that, that constantly we progress, that we don't stay in the same position saying, okay, we did something great, but uh, it's, it's more, how do we make sure that we also participate to the next great move? Um, mm. and, and, and by the way, today we have a, a discussion around that. Uh, and if I had to summarize the, the theme of that discussion is how do we invent our future as an organization? And, and it's, it's a teamwork and, and you need every day to look at what you've done and uh, see if you could have done better and how you're going to do better on the next, on the next project. But uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's, it's a question of size of the company. For me, it's really a question of culture mm -hmm. uh, and, and the openness, the transparency, the inclusion and some participate to uh, this atmosphere where people want to continuously improve or sometimes it's not improvement. It's doing things very differently. Mm -hmm. well, I think if there's, you know, for our, for our listeners, I think, you know, that, that question you asked Sebastian, you know, if you could do things differently, what would you do is a, a really, uh, really poignant one. And one that I think everyone should consider in their own business, uh, is a way of unlocking creativity and, and innovation, which I think is a, is a, is a fantastic learner and uh, learning. And, and, and on that kind of similar, you mentioned kind of the team and the value of teamwork. You, you strike me as being, uh, a really competent leader as well. I imagine you, you lead a, a large team of uh, of people. And so what is, is is that leadership? I was going to ask you about, you know, you've obviously had a really successful career and I'm interested to know what skills that you've had on that journey that have you know equipped you for having such a, uh, a long and successful career to date. Um, so anything you can share about your personal competences or, or even things that you constantly work at, you know, are there things that uh, that are not in your skill set that you find yourself constantly work at? Because what we don't want to do is paint a picture that, you know, it, it's easy <laughs> or anything like that, because I'm sure you have to work on your own uh, your personal development as well. So things, so interesting to hear, you know, what things have come naturally to you, maybe, for example, leadership and management or, you know, what things that you've had to, you know, uh, I suppose, constantly invest in yourself to, to get better at. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult question, uh, especially when you have to look at yourself. It's never easy. But I think that I can I can summarize that by a discussion I had many years ago with one of, of my colleagues who said, if you have to make a decision now, today, uh, in a minute, uh, you're picking expertise or management. And I said, no, management. 
because I like expertise and I like technology and I'm, I'm always curious and I'm reading a lot. I opened a, a book for the first time three days ago and, and yesterday evening I finished it uh, because I, I like stories and there's always something to learn. <laughs> Uh, and that and that's very much the expertise point. Uh, you're constantly learning and 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 you're constantly trying to find new solutions, new technologies, and so on. But what I like even more is working with people. Uh, and I believe that as as a manager, you have the ability to bring some people together and you can have a different impact because you're putting people together. I always say it's always the team's success and the failure of the manager, but really I think it. If as a manager, you're not putting the right people together, it's going to fail because of your decision. I mean, you're, mm-hmm. putting, you're putting the team together. And, and that's what I like is working with very different characters uh, making sure they understand exactly what is expected from them and working on the team dynamics so that those who are shy don't have problems participating, making sure that those who easily speak leave space to the others so that we include everyone's idea as well. And I think that's where, as a, as a manager, you can you can have an, an, an impact. Um, mm-hmm. Still, I have to work on on myself uh, on on a few points, and I'm regularly asking for feedback uh, because I know what I can, I know what I personally like, but I don't know if the others enjoyed what I enjoyed, and therefore I have to ask for feedback. Did you like the method? Did you like the communication style? Was that transparent enough? Mm-hmm. And so on. So. Uh, for I mean to improve you, you you need to ask for feedback, but more importantly, you need to listen to that feedback. And for that, yeah. the 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 point on which I work is finding that time to listen to the feedback. It's very easy to ask for feedback. It takes much more time to listen to it and integrate that feedback in your in your next activities. And that's really, that's really yeah. the point. Uh, give time to people so that they give me feedback and give myself time and not running to the next activity to integrate that feedback in my in my next activities. Yeah, and I think that's terrific advice as well, Sebastian, because it's, it's what you would expect of your team as well. You know, when you provide feedback to your team, you expect them to take that on board, listen and, and hopefully adapt. And I think by doing it yourself, you're also setting a great example for your team that, hey, you know, that the leader isn't better than anyone or anything like that. But, you know, you ha- you're always continually improving as well. So that's great, great advice. And, and if you if you could go back and give your uh, some advice to your 25 year old self, Sebastian, what what would you say? I would say uh, stay curious and keep all the doors opened. You never know when you will have the opportunity, but when it comes, you need to be ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I I I've uh, uh, f- some friends who regret today that when they had the opportunity, they they didn't take that opportunity. Mm-hmm. And and for that reason, I know that the opportunity may come once, <laughs> not twice. Uh, so stay curious and stay open. Yeah, 
No, great, great advice. It's it's a really consistent theme that I hear from many of the leaders like yourself that have had the fortune of interviewing of that sense of being openness and taking advantage of opportunities when they arise. So, you know, for for those of you who are younger in, in your careers, you know, listen to that advice because you don't want to regret it 10, 15 years later. And 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 Sebastian, how would your best friend describe you in in three words? Optimistic is probably the first one. I always see the glass half full, if not two thirds full. Doesn't mean not realistic, but optimistic. I, I we're gonna make it. We'll find a solution. Um, it, it may be difficult. It may be long. It may be painful. We'll find a solution. So really optimistic is, is probably the first the first word they would they would give you. Motivated is the second one. And it's different from being optimistic because, I mean, you may be optimistic, but still waiting for something to happen. But uh, no, I, I, I am also motivated to find that, that solution uh, mm-hmm. that I believe we will find. And usually my friends tell me that uh, my motivation is contagious <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, uh, because they see that I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying. Then they will say, OK, let's, let's try as well. Uh, and the last one, it, I mean, back to what we discussed before, uh, builder. Mm-hmm. I, I like building things. And it's not only in, in my professional life as well. At home, that's that's the same. I like building things. <laughs> Very good. You like building things and then you, you tell your wife that you're moving somewhere else and you leave them behind. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So we have a, a few more just in the last three or four minutes. And I know we've talked about COVID and the impact of, of uh, the pandemic on on the outsourcing space. Just interested in your thoughts on any other big uh, shifts and trends and changes that you're seeing going on uh, in the sector or you know predictions of what you think may happen in the next few years. For someone like yourself that's been in, in the gene therapy space for, for many years as well, interested in how that market you see developing. So yeah, very, very broad or specific as you want would be great to get your insights. Yeah, uh, personalized medicine certainly uh, is something that I, I see coming. We've, we've talked about personalized medicine for many years, but, but finally here we are. And, and there are many examples of personalized medicine. People tend to associate personalized medicine to cell therapy or gene therapy, but, but not only. I was, I was watching a TV program was that last week or beginning of this week? Uh, someone who was uh, grafted uh, from the shoulder uh, uh, to the tip of the fingers uh, on, and, and both, uh, both arms, both hands, and so on. Wow. Uh, that, that's coming. Or, or um, uh, grafting a face. I mean, who could imagine just 10 years ago that we would successfully graft a face? Mm-hmm. Uh, I found that. Fascinating. So personalized medicine, and I, I include surgery in that case, uh, into personalized medicine. Um, uh, that's coming, and certainly cell therapy, viral therapy, and gene therapy are participating a lot uh, to this uh, uh, boom in the personalized uh, medicine space. Mm-hmm. There are still a lot of tools to invent here. Uh, and if I make the parallel with uh, recombinant protein manufacturing, where it's really templated. There are many tools in the toolbox that we can use uh, for cell therapy. For example, we have everything uh, to invent. Uh, the tools, the processes, and the templates. So, I mean, makes that a, a, an exciting perspective. 
Mm -hmm. um, personalized medicine would be would be number one. Um, number two, and I, I think it's obvious, uh, we see that with the vaccines these days. Uh, uh, the activities on the nucleic acid side are, are booming as well, and I, I assume there is a lot more coming. Interesting. And I wanted a little bit of a follow-up question on the, on the personalized medicines and the cell and gene therapies. And you, you mentioned kind of the need for more tools. Those those types of treatments are uh, notoriously known as being very expensive, uh, particularly here in the US where, where I'm based. Uh, you know, the costs of such treatments are, are astro astronomical. Do you see the costs of or the, the production and processing of those treatments coming down from a cost perspective in the next 10 years as you add more tools, as you, uh, you know, think differently and, and that type of thing. Just really interested to hear if you expect that to happen uh, in the same way that it would, you know, uh, any other industry or any other kind of uh, medicine that, you know, you can find more efficient ways of doing things. I, I yeah, I, I do see that coming, the cost reduction. And, and for me, that's driver number one for new tools development. Uh, we need to develop tools so that people can have access to these treatments and, and the cost limit the access to them. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, again, I'm going to make the parallel with recombinant proteins. Uh, 10 years ago, uh, a cell line was typically producing 0.5 grams per liter. Uh, today, a cell line is producing 5 grams per liter. Uh, mm -hmm. So with a 10 times higher productivity, and to make simple mathematics, the cost per gram is divided by 10. Mm. Uh, why? Because we've improved the cell lines, because the cell line development is a much more robust process today than it was in the past, because we have large-scale bioreactors, uh, even using single-use equipment, and you don't have to put together a 100 million facility. And, and we've designed facilities for some of our clients uh, with uh, 10 times less than that. Uh, mm. So the, the cost per gram of recombinant protein has, has really uh, uh, decreased by a lot. And I, I see the same coming with these tools development. The fact is that today, if we're talking about viral therapy, uh, each virus is kind of unique. And how many platforms do you have where you can uh, integrate or incorporate the gene of interest very quickly and make an assessment of the new uh, virus you, you created. I mean, it's still a, a lot of research. It's still a lot of time. When when you're taking a, a, a Cho cell that we're using for monoclonal antibody manufacturing, putting a gene of interest is, I mean, I'm not going to say my oldest daughter could do it, but yeah, indeed, my oldest daughter could do it. Um, <laughs> making a virus, no, no. Um, it's still extremely heavy uh, in terms of investment, mm -hmm. time, money, infrastructure, and so on. Um, but I believe that in 10 years from now, we'll talk about these platforms uh, very much like we're talking about the monoclonal antibody platforms today. Uh, well, I hope that's going to be the case in 10 years. But to be honest, I, I worked on these viruses 25 years ago, and we believed it would be simple. It's not been that simple, but 20 years after, here we are. It, it works. Mm -hmm. Adenoviruses are used as a vaccine these days. Uh, and we believed 25 years ago that it, it would be a, a commodity and, and a vaccine like the others. Okay, here we are. Mm, very good. Well, I think that's a very um, positive, encouraging, and hopeful place to end 
our, our discussion. And Sebastian, thank you so much for being a guest on, on Molecule to Market. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you today and getting your thoughts. Uh, so thank you for taking the time and your very busy schedule to, to share uh, your background and insights with our, with our listeners. Well, thanks very much. And I uh, really appreciated the, the opportunity to uh, speak with you today. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you'd like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.